All right, HW, well, thank you uh, for, for taking the time. It's, it's great to meet you and welcome on the show. Delighted. Delighted to be talking to you. So in my research of you before uh, speaking with you today, I, I was reviewing uh, a lecture that you gave about, about your new book, uh, Dreams of El Dorado. And I wanted to start uh, by asking some context as to uh, getting your take on who those dreamers were. I know these were individuals who seemed to be coming from, from all over the world to the West, but um, in your research of the book and the writing of the book, who really were the, the dreamers who were interested in, in, in coming to the West to make their fortune? They were people who shared the common trait of emigrants, immigrants, depending on which side you're viewing them from, people who were dissatisfied with where they were, but who were optimistic enough about themselves and their chances to believe that they would find a better life somewhere else. Hmm. And this has characterized people who move from one country to another from time immemorial. They weren't the desperately poor. People who are desperately poor don't have the resources to get up and go, in some cases, halfway across the country or halfway across the world. Right. On the other hand, they are not sufficiently successful where they are to realize uh, it's not going to get any better than this. So these were... These were people who participated in what, as a historian, I've kind of observed is the filtration process of emigration or relocation. So it sifts out the really poor, and it sifts out the really successful. Mm -hmm. And what you get is a middle stratum of people, but they're also people who are restless in some way or another. They're not easily satisfied. They're also optimistic. They they do believe their future can be better than their past. And I think that, in fact, I've even come up with this sort of informal, very inchoate theory that nations that have been populated historically by immigrants, they tend to be more restless. Mm. They tend to be less happy in the sense of contented happy, but they also tend to be the nations that sort of move the world hmm. because these are the strivers. These are the ones who are going to go out and change, change the world. They change the world by changing their lives first, and then they're going to change the world after that. Hmm. And, and the time period we're talking about here, I know that people came to the West for, for many, many decades. When, in, in your writing of that history, when does this really start, the spark of the imagination, the interest from the global community in, in coming to the West? I was asked to write a history of the American West by an editor at Basic Books. Mm. And we had to talk about, and I had to consider, well, what West was I going to write about? Because in American history, the West began in 1607 with the founding of Jamestown. And geographically, it began about 100 yards inland from Jamestown. <laughs> because everything that was wilderness, everything that was unsettled and unclaimed by the settlers mm. and their descendants was the West. Mm. The West moved progressively west mm. as the American population expanded. And so if I'd been writing about all of those Wests, then I would have been writing something that was really no less than a history of the United States. Yeah. And that was really much more than I wanted to do. Besides, if you ask somebody today, uh, well, what do you know about the American West? What do you think about the American West? They don't think of Kentucky. Yeah. I mean, at one time, that was the American West. They think of the West somewhere west of the Mississippi River. They think of maybe the plains of Texas or the plains of Dakota. They think of the mountains of Colorado or the mountains of California. They think of the gold rush in California. They think of the great migration along the Oregon Trail. So I made this decision that I was going to write about the trans-Mississippi West. And that led me to decide 
what the chronological boundaries of my history were going to be. Mm. So the decision on where the geographical boundaries are led to the chronological boundaries. And I decided to start my book with the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. The subtitle of my book, the title of my book is Dreams of El Dorado. The subtitle is A History of the American West. And that American West was important, at least in justifying my decision to start with the Lewis and Clark with the Louisiana Purchase and mm. the Lewis and Clark Expedition, because the Lewis and Clark Expedition is funded and organized by Thomas Jefferson to figure out what he just purchased, but more to go beyond there all the way to the Pacific. But that starts at the beginning of the 19th century. Louisiana is purchased by the United States in 1803. And that's the first time that the United States has had any legal claim to territory west of the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. So that was a convenient place to begin. That's the first time that portion of the West becomes America's West, as in the United States West. Mm. And that's where I begin. And then the question is, where am I going to cut it off? So conceivably, I could have written up until the 21st century. But I didn't want to do that in the first place because, well, the principal justification was that by the time you get to the 20th century, the West is no longer this distinct and distinctive region of the country. So if you want to understand California in the 1850s, California in the 1850s is a world apart. It's a place apart. It's a people apart. If you want to understand California in the 1950s, what you really need to understand is the United States in the post-war period. Mm. So Los Angeles in, or San Francisco in 1850 is a city like no other in America. San Francisco or Los Angeles in 1950 could be Atlanta or it could be Boston. So I end my story at the beginning of the 20th century, and there's a nice convenient historical marker. Theodore Roosevelt becomes president of the United States mm -hmm. in 1901. And Theodore Roosevelt, arguably, is the first Western president. He was born and grew up in New York, but he spent time in Dakota Territory, part of the West. And he himself claimed that he would not have been the person he became. He would not have been the success he became had he not spent time in the West because mm. he was really this rich kid from New York. And the appeal of a rich kid from New York uh, historically has been pretty slim in American life. But because he spent time in the West, he developed this connection to the ordinary people of America. And it was really critical that it occurred when it did, because he got there as the West was fading from reality into memory. Mm. And so Roosevelt sort of caught that nostalgia for the West. And he rode that wave of nostalgia. And so he became president in 1901. He lived until 1919. By the last years of his life, people who had been in the West during the 19th century, they were all lamenting that it had gone. And it had become as much this part of American memory as a part of American reality. Hmm. You mentioned the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. At that time, for it's hard for people, I think, who live in this country now to, uh, to think about or imagine what how little was known about that part of the country or that part of the world at that point. What were the impressions prior to the Lewis and Clark expedition of people who were living on, in coastal America? What, what was known? What was the impression of what, what this massive purchase actually was that we just obtained? Well, I answer your question by telling you what they didn't know or what yeah. they got wrong. So Thomas Jefferson was a natural philosopher. He was a scientist as much as he was a politician. And this was what sparked his interest in Louisiana and sending Lewis and Clark on this core of discovery. In fact, yeah. that was the formal name of Lewis and Clark expedition. And Jefferson had this idea that by going up the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, that Lewis and Clark and the other 20 people in their expedition would, would come close to the headwaters of the Columbia River. 
the where the Columbia River rose in the mountains was pretty unclear because nobody, as far as I can tell, not even Native Americans, had a single person made the trip hmm. from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Coast. The the indigenous peoples had no particular reason to do it. They didn't just idly go out and explore. They went to the next tribe to trade something or other. But it's I certainly cannot document that anybody made that trip. And Jefferson imagined and he hoped that the headwaters of the Missouri River, which is part of the Mississippi chain, would intermingle with the headwaters of the Columbia River in the way he knew, for example, that in Russia, the headwaters of rivers running to the Baltic Sea on the northern border, northern part of Russia, intermingle with the headwaters of rivers running to the Black Sea. And so there is, in effect, a water route across Russia from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. And he imagined that there would be something similar from the Atlantic to the Pacific. One of the things that people have been looking for, the holy grail of exploration in the Americas, had been the Northwest Passage. And it was a passage that would allow access from the Atlantic to the Pacific without having to go all the way around South America. And the reason that people initially thought there might be such a thing is that the first place the Pacific was sighted by a European was in Panama, the skinniest part of the dual continent system. And so this gave rise to what I've sometimes called the Balboan delusion that it's really not far from the Atlantic to the Pacific. When Virginia was founded, when Jefferson was born, no one had any idea how far it was from Virginia hmm. to the Pacific. Jefferson, by the time Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark off, people had figured out longitude. They had figured out how big the earth was. So they knew roughly how many miles it was from St. Louis, Missouri, where the Lewis and Clark expedition takes off. Mm. They knew how many degrees of longitude and roughly how many miles it was to the Pacific coast. But they didn't know what it was like in between. Mm. And in fact, Jefferson purchased Louisiana, which goes to the crest of the Rocky Mountains. Beyond that, he had to tell Lewis and Clark, you're really on your own because you're not on American territory anymore. You are no longer under the protection or auspices of American law. So when you get out there, be careful. Mm -hmm. And I'm don't, you know, I'm not sure we can <laughs> bail you out if you get into trouble. Yeah. But so Lewis and Clark go up the river, go up the Missouri River, and it just seems longer and longer than they had expected. And it takes them forever to find the Rocky Mountains because they have to go so far across the Great Plains. And Lewis, who was really the, the recorder of the expedition and the one, the scientist of the group, he would write in his journal, where in the world are these, actually they called them the Stony Mountains. Mm. Where are these mountains? And finally he saw them and thought, okay, well, good. So that's the divine land. Once we get there, once we get, we have to just sort of cross a ridge. They imagine crossing a ridge like the Appalachian Mountains, mm. like going from Philadelphia to Pencil to Pittsburgh, mm. where you go over a ridge of mountains and there you are. <laughs> well... They got to the top of the first ridge, and they see another ridge, and another ridge, and another other ridge, and it's just heartbreaking. In fact, Lewis didn't tell the other members of the Corps when he gets to the top of the mountains how many more mountains there were to go. But they get to, and they're still encouraged that there might be this water passage across North America as long as they're going up the Missouri, because for the first 800 miles, there really aren't any rapids or falls in the Missouri River. So they're, it's, they're going upstream, but they can still paddle and pole and all this. And then they get to the Falls of the Missouri. And the Falls of the Missouri are this series, mostly, they're mostly underwater now behind dams, but 
Um, there's a series of falls that I think there are five. There were five falls altogether that crash uh, a height much greater than Niagara Falls. Wow! And and when Lewis sees these, he realizes, <laughs> oh, Jefferson's not going to like this. There is no, there is no, not going to be any water out between the Atlantic and the Pacific by this thing. So this is what they were up against. When they got into what's going to become Dakota Territory and then Montana, they essentially fell off the face of the earth, as far as anybody back home knew. In fact, Jefferson, the one who organized this, didn't hear from them for over about 18 months. Hmm. And he and most people who knew about it assumed that they had been killed. They had died uh, or been killed by Indians or something like that. And so when they emerged... Two and a half years after they started, it was as though they had risen from the dead and they just showed up in St. Louis one day. And there's a great celebration. You know, what have you found us? And well, well, Mr. President, it's you're not going to like all of this, but this is what we found. Was it really you know, when they did reemerge from the dead and, and come back and tell the stories of their expedition and their adventures? Was that really the genesis of a greater expedition of normal Americans moving and being interested in going out west? No, not at that point at all. Hmm. Because one of the things that that exploded was the idea that there are these wonderful places to live out there, what they described. And, and this was fairly standard. So the journals of Lewis and Clark were rushed into print because this was the way of getting the news out of what we had seen. Hmm. And so what they saw was well, these Great Plains, but the Great Plains certainly didn't look like land you could farm. They were covered with buffalo mm. and with Indians. And so this appealed to that very small portion of the population, might be buffalo hunters. They got into the mountains and they saw beaver and other animals that you might trap for their furs. Again, a real niche kind of market. And endless mountains. They did go down the Columbia River they didn't, by that time, they were so anxious to get to the Pacific that they didn't really explore Oregon much. They didn't see the Willamette Valley, which became the goal of the first wave of emigrants to the far west. Hmm. These, are, these are farmers. These hmm. are people who want land that is arable, land that is well watered. But from essentially the Missouri River, which is at the edge of that arid region in the middle of the country— until you get to, until you cross the Cascade Mountains into the Lamette Valley, hmm. none of that land is really open to farming. Hmm. And so when people read the Lewis and Clark Journal, they said, well, there's nothing there. And so it was, well, in fact, the term for the Great Plains uh, for years was the Great American Desert because it really looked dry, it didn't have trees. Interestingly, Americans, along with Europeans and a lot of other people, equated forests with fertile soil. And if they didn't see forests, they assumed there was something wrong with the soil. In fact, that's not the connection. The forests are usually lack of water. If they'd known anything, for example, about the, the uh, tropical rainforest of the Amazon of Central Africa, they might have discovered eventually that the soils there are really lousy for farming because all the nutrients leach out so fast from all of the rain. But it really took another, well, 30 years before anybody expressed much interest in the, the regions that they had crossed. Anything beyond interest relating to, initially it was fur trading. And so there were people who were interested in trading furs and trapping furs first, 
who read the Lewis and Clark Journal thought, okay, there's something we can do with this. Hmm. And I know a big uh, section of your book or a section of your book relates to the Oregon Trail, which I think still has a mythical connotation in a lot of Americans' mind. If you could uh, talk about the the beginning of the Oregon Trail and really what what the overall objective was for the people who were considering or actually did take uh, their lives into the hands of of of, uh, of nature and and try to go westward. So imagine something like a cross between the Israelites fleeing Egypt and making this journey. So there's something about a journey that bonds a people together. Cross that with the moonshot of the 1960s because it was that kind of leap. There was this civilized place that they were leaving, and there was this place that they were going, but in between was this largely unknown and rather inhospitable territory they had to get across. And this made the settlement of the Far West very different from the settlement of earlier Wests. Hmm. So when Daniel Boone led Virginians out of Virginia into Kentucky, all they did was they just went next door. And the settlement of the Old West, the west of the part east of the Mississippi River, was like building suburbs next to big cities. And the people went to Kentucky for exactly the reason that people moved to the suburbs. They can't afford to live downtown. Hmm. And that's the first place they can afford, in our age, a house. In those days, property for a farm. And so there was this desire for contiguity, and you didn't go any farther than you absolutely had to. Mm. But once you get to the Missouri River, then to get to the next place where you could conveniently live, you really have to make this great leap. And so it was the first time Americans in substantial groups banded together and went on these long journeys. And everybody knew that when they went on this journey, this was going to be something unlike what they had ever done in their lives before, and they hoped something unlike they would ever do again. This was a real high point. This was an adventure of their lives. And they heard all sorts of stories about what was awaiting them. They knew, for most, for the most part, they knew that where they were going was different than where they had been. They certainly hoped it was. That was the reason they were going. It was also the first time and the first place in American history where people could hope to get land for free. And when people moved into Kentucky, when people moved into other parts of the American West, land was cheaper, but they had to buy it because somebody owned it. But the striking thing about Oregon was when those first immigrants to Oregon in the 1840s, it was at the time it was called the Great Migration. And we're talking a thousand people in the first year and the 3,000, 5,000. So maybe a total of 15,000 by 1848, which is a critical year. Hmm. Um, so it's it's small enough that you could sort of get your head around, uh, but it's large enough that it actually means something. But they're going into this place that is not only unknown in terms of what it's going to be like to live there, but unknown as to, well, who actually owns it? And they went out there. They realized they knew that there were Indians living there, but as in other parts of North America, the population of the Indian tribes had fallen dramatically as a result of introduced, introduced diseases to mm -hmm. which they didn't have resistance. And the population, the, the population density had never been particularly great in the first place. So they could go out there, and although they were 
In fact, they, most of them were not intrinsically hostile to the Indians. They assumed that there's room for all of us. Hmm. And if there isn't, we'll figure something out. The Oregon Territory, as it was called, or the Oregon Country, at that time comprised what is now the state of Oregon, the state of Washington, Idaho, and British Columbia. Hmm. And it was contested diplomatically and legally between the United States and Britain. And so when Americans went out there, they, in a certain sense, were recapitulating the voyages of the first of the pilgrims and the Virginia settlers. They were going out to claim this territory for their, the country of their origin. They figured if we get enough Americans out there on the ground, then we will be the ones who will get this. Hmm. But there was no one to give them title to the land. And so they went out there and they just started farming. And once they started farming, they assumed accurately, as it turned out, that they would be able to petition Congress and Congress would make things right. Hmm. And again, this was a time when most Americans were still connected to the land. They were the farmers themselves or they lived in a part of the economy close to the land. And when probably the stature of American farmers was greater than it had ever been in part because there were still enough farmers, but also because they were so slowly beginning to be eclipsed by people who lived in cities and worked other jobs. And so they could claim, so sort of have their, their roots in the golden age of American history. And the golden age always is sort of 50 years in the past. It was, it's the age of your childhood, whenever mm. that was. Mm. And so they had that credibility. And eventually they did petition Congress saying, okay, we have built an outpost of America here. Now give us title to the land that we've already improved. Hmm. So this was what they were thinking when they headed off to Oregon. And the best of all worlds in there, it, it, the amount of dreams and hopes that must be in the imaginations of people who are willing to risk their lives to go on a journey like this, what the, the best case scenario for, for those individuals who are risking life and limb to head out to, to the Oregon Territory, what, would, what was the best case scenario for them? So the first thing was they would get there in one piece yeah. and they would get there alive. And most of them did. Okay. In fact, the most dangerous part of the journey was simply getting across the Missouri River. Hmm. And it wasn't because they would fall off and drown in the river, although that did happen. It was as the numbers of people heading west increased, they overwhelmed the sanitary facilities of the river crossings of the Missouri River. And it occurred just after the arrival of cholera. This was this new disease that yep. came out of nowhere. It actually came out of Turkey or someplace like that. And it arrived in America. And all sorts of people got cholera because they, it was a, it's a waterborne disease yep. and they didn't know where, how they got it. And so they would sort of just try to hold their breath. And if they could get 100 miles or so past the Missouri and they didn't show the symptoms, they'd probably be okay. So the first thing is to get there in one piece. The second thing is to find a plot of ground that you can farm. A third thing, and I was surprised at the number of people for whom this was an important consideration, they hoped they could find better health. In the middle of the country, in the Ohio Valley and the Mississippi Valley, malaria was a chronic disease, and people had no idea what to do about it. They, there weren't any drugs that dealt with malaria. And they just want, it was called the fever and ague. And so it would, they'd alternatively sweat and then they'd shiver, even mm. in the middle of the summer. And they had heard that there wasn't malaria in Oregon. In fact, there wasn't because nobody carrying malaria had gotten there and the mosquitoes <laughs> weren't there. And eventually there would be malaria. But, but when you first head off, okay, it seemed like a, a good deal. And, and, one of the, oh, and one of the really great things for the historian about telling the story 
is, as I mentioned a little bit ago, everybody realized this was a great adventure. And people tend to record the high moments of their lives. Also, for very many people, it was the first time they had left home. And so they would write letters to home, or very often they would simply keep a journal, a journal of their journey. The two words are directly related to each other. So that the people back home, their mother and father, their brothers or their cousins, whoever it might be, uh, would be able to know what they were doing. And furthermore, when those journals or the letters arrived home, the people who received them knew this was big stuff. We're going to hold on to this. Mm. So there are thousands of these in historical archives around the country. Mm. One of the hardest things for historians is to write about ordinary people. Ordinary people in ordinary times are really hard to write about. Ordinary people in extraordinary times like this, then you can write about them. This is why it's so easy to get coverage of the Civil War because people who go off to war know this is a big deal. You can get coverage of the migration out to Oregon. I, this book also includes the California Gold Rush, same sort of thing. And so it allows me to people the book with these ordinary folks who would have been lost to history otherwise. Hmm. You know, we're sitting here in Austin, Texas, and I know Texas is of particular interest to you and in, in your historical um, career. And I want to talk about what this state meant uh, in its in its beginning for the component of, of the westward journey I, I know in in uh, in researching the book that you know part of the appeal for Texas initially was that it was not a part of the United States and there was no extradition treaty that existed which allowed you know criminals potentially to come here and essentially drop off the face of the earth which is another theme it seems like through a lot of uh, the westward westward expansion is the the capacity to just essentially disappear and go to another planet for all intents and purposes. Um, what what most interested you, or what? Because I know you you've researched Texas in the past uh, in in other in, in other works of yours. What most interested you about Texas, or what what kind of information or stories that you found out about the way Texas fit into the westward expansion in this book specifically that that most interested you? Well, I'm a Westerner myself. I yeah. grew up in Oregon. And so I never really thought of Texas as part of the West until right. I got to Texas. Yeah, And I came to Texas 35 years ago, and I was surrounded by all these people who really self-identify as Texans in the way very few people in other parts of the country identify. And I was intrigued by this. And so I always wondered, so what is it about Texas? That was sort of part of it. But it was also, I discovered, something you just mentioned, and it's something that Texans share with the Mormons who went to Utah. Of all the people who went west, most of them were happy that they were going to territory claimed by the United States, and they tended to shun territory that wasn't. So Americans living in Ohio could have gone to western Canada if they wanted to, or they could have gone to Mexico if they wanted to, but they preferred going to some place that was under the auspices and authority of the United States. But there were two groups who didn't, who wanted just the opposite. They wanted to get out from under American law. Mm. There were the Mormons who had been persecuted in the East, first in New York and then in Missouri and in Illinois, and they just wanted out. Mm. And so they headed off to Utah at a time when, at the time they were planning to leave, Utah was still part of northern Mexico, and they went there precisely because it would be beyond American control. The people who went to Texas, they went to Texas, well, 
Some of them, the first ones, went to Texas, since we're in Texas, came to Texas at the invitation of the Mexican government. And I have to say that one of the things that drew me to write about Texas was this puzzlement that I had in trying to figure out why in the world the Mexican government would invite American colonists to come in. Because by the time I was asking this question, by the time I got to Texas, I knew enough about the story to know that, okay, the Americans are invited into Texas and they turn around and steal Texas away from Mexico. And my question was, well, what was the Mexican government thinking? What I didn't realize, because I it took a little more of my research. Now, good Texans know this is something they learn in their seventh grade Texas history class, although a lot of them seem to have forgot when I poll the people that I talk to. <laughs> um, the reason the Americans were invited in was that Mexico was about to lose Texas, not to the Americans, but to the Comanches. And the Comanches were invading Texas at just the time the Americans were invading Texas. And the Mexicans decided, the Mexican government, upon achieving independence in 1821, decided that the Americans were less threatening than the Comanches, which is saying a lot about the Comanches, <laughs> because the Americans had by this time shown themselves to be aggressively expansionist. So the first group of Americans come in, and they are model citizens of the Mexican Republic. And they had reason to be because the Mexican Republic had granted them more land than they would ever acquire in their wildest dreams if they stayed in the United States. But once they got to Texas, they did what immigrants do all the time. They write letters home. And the letters are read by these people back home. And the letters say, this Texas is a wonderful place. There's all this land and the climate's good. It doesn't freeze here in the winter. And there's opportunity for everybody ought to come. And so more people come. And increasingly they discover that nobody's guarding the border and they can come and nobody's really checking to see if they have title to the land where they just put down and they plant some cotton or plant some corn or something like that. And there's land seems to be for the taking. And then there's the group of people who decide that they want to go to Texas precisely because they've got something to get away from back east. And it could be bad debts. It could be a bad marriage. It could be they're wanted for murder. Who knows what it might be? And this phenomenon became so common that bill collectors developed this shorthand for dealing with debts that were uncollectible. And they would just put GTT, gone to Texas, on the bill. Don't bother even trying to collect. (laughs) And there were people, James Bowie, for example, who had become one of the heroes of the Alamo, who was wanted for illegal slave trading, was wanted for land fraud in two or three states in the United States. And he came to Texas knowing that they can't get me here. And there was a region on the the western part of Louisiana and the eastern part of Texas. It was called the no man's land. And it was land where no man's law existed. Hmm. And outlaws would just hang out there. And if the authorities were chasing him too hard on one side, they'd jump the border to the other side, and then they'd reverse when things went the other way. Hmm. And so for, it turned out by the mid-1830s, the largest group of immigrants to Texas were these illegal immigrants. In fact, the phenomenon became so striking and so threatening to Mexican authority and Mexican order that the Mexican government of Mexico City sent a border commission to go examine the border and file a report. And the report said that if we cannot stop this illegal immigration, then Texas is lost. Hmm. And in fact, within eight years of that, that 
report, Texas indeed was lost because this second group of Americans who came in, they eventually got kind of restive under Mexican law. And they thought, well, okay. And, and this has to do with changes in Mexican law. So even, well, Stephen Austin, Stephen F. Austin, who was really the founding father of American Texas, he was the one who brought the first colonists in. He was of a model and loyal citizen of Republican Mexico. And it took him a long time to change his mind about this. Mm. Now, Sam Houston, the other individual who's known as the founding father of Texas, he was one who came in for the sole purpose of ripping Texas away from Mexico and adding it to the United States. Mm. So there's this Texas revolution and Texas defeats the Mexican army sent and Texas claims its independence. The whole idea was that Texas then immediately would be taken into the arms of the United States. But the rest of the United States said, no, we don't want you because you've got slaves. And there was, it because they wanted to come in by treaty, which requires a two-thirds majority in the Senate, there was a sufficiently large minority in the Senate that blocked a treaty of annexation. And so this part of Texas history, if you ask Texans what makes Texas unique, they say, well, Texas was an independent country. Indeed it was, but it wasn't the Texans' idea. They didn't want to be an independent country at all. It's right. just that Americans wouldn't invite them to the party, so they had to stay on the outside for almost a decade. I think I think I also remember you mentioning in, a, in another interview that Sam Houston lived long enough to uh, witness the secession of uh, Texas from from the Union and was opposed to it. Yeah. So Sam Houston was was a species politician that it's really hard for our modern minds to remember existed. He was a states' rights unionist. Now, we usually associate states' rights with secession, but he believed in states' rights. He believed that laws that were made at the state level were generally better because more attuned to the wishes of the people than laws made in far-off Washington. But he drew a clear line between that and leaving the union. And so he had cut his teeth in the army as a young man as part of the U.S. Army. And he had worked hard to bring Texas into the Union. And he believed that leaving the Union would be disastrous for Texas and for the rest of the South. He was governor of Texas at the time. And he refused to take an oath of allegiance to the Confederacy. And for this, Mm -hmm. he was basically deposed as governor of Texas. He died in the middle of the Civil War. But the war that he had predicted, the war that would rend the Union and destroy the economy of the South, was fully underway. Mm. And he died essentially brokenhearted because this his new home, Texas, had turned had turned its back on his old home mm. and his first home. Mm. With all this research you've done about individuals who documented their 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 interest in the West and their journey to the West, I'm curious to to know how it's changed your perception of the country we both live in in terms of our history and the the difference between the stories we tell and the truth of what actually happened in our past H- has this book fundamentally or in some ways significantly changed the way you view America it really has not that much and this probably has something to do with the fact that I'm from the west myself yeah. so these stories are stories that I grew up with I grew up really on the Oregon Trail. My grandparents had a summer house on the western part of the Oregon Trail, Mm. and they bought an old covered wagon for the kids to play in. Mm. And from the time I was a kid, my dad would take us around to sites on the Columbia River where Lewis and Clark had pitched camp and done all this. So I I knew all that part of the story. But one of the things that did strike me, it's not so much much the, the history of the West itself, but 
in some ways, the lingering effects of Western history. So I grew up in Oregon and I went to college in California. I went to Stanford in the early 1970s before anybody had called it Silicon Valley. Mm. It was just the sleepy South Bay. And there were one or two electronics companies in the area, Hewlett Packard. Yeah. And there were these two guys named Steve that were beavering away in a, a garage somewhere in Palo Alto, but nobody knew about them yet. And so if anybody were predicting what the epicenter of the coming tech revolution would be, where it would be, there was no particular reason to think that it would be there. Mm. In fact, if you had been betting on it, then smarter money probably would have been on Boston because the things that you needed, the, you needed the educational infrastructure and you need sort of the seed company. So there were electronics companies on, in the greater Boston area. And of course, Harvard and MIT are there. And yeah. so this was what you would need. Well, it turns out, same stuff was there in the South Bay or the Santa Clara Valley. That's yeah. the valley, part of Silicon Valley. But there was something that California had that Boston didn't have. And I have come to think that it was a legacy of the California gold rush. So there had been an earlier model of American success. And the earlier model was, call it the Puritan model or the Benjamin Franklin model. So Benjamin Franklin was a great success as a printer and a businessman. But his great success consisted of working hard, um, early to bed, early to rise, you know, all these sort of aphorisms for 30 years until you have enough that you could retire and leave the business to somebody else and go on and do the things that interested you more. It wasn't overnight success and it wasn't spectacular success. You would, you would be comfortable after 30 years. And there seemed to be a connection. This is the Puritan part of it. There seemed to be a connection between your moral values and the success of your business. And as a result, people in that part of the world tended to be rather risk averse because good Presbyterians or Calvinists, most of them, they believed that God chose who was going to be saved and who wasn't. And we humans can't know, but there are clues. And clues consist of, well, do you, does your farm prosper? Does your business do well? And so if you undertake a risky business venture, then you risk learning that maybe God didn't choose me. Maybe I'm going to hell. Mm. So those Bostonians, even as late as the 20th century, they were much more conservative in the business they were going to back. California, on the other hand, so in California, imagine in the 1850s, there are two gold miners who are out there in the, the diggings. And the, the first part of the diggings were you basically stand in freezing cold, rushing water, and you got a pan in your hand, and you reach down, you put a bunch of junk in, and you wash it around, and maybe you find something, maybe you don't. So imagine two miners who are right next to each other, and the claims are really small, so they're you know 20 feet apart. And one guy reaches down and picks up a gold nugget. <laughs> I'm rich. And the guy right next to him reaches down and picks up a rock. I'm not rich. Does the guy who picks up a rock, does he say, there's something wrong with me? Does he beat his breast and hang his head? No. He says, I just wasn't lucky. So he files a new claim and tries again. What the California gold rush did was to normalize risk, to normalize failure. In fact, mm -hmm. failure became something of a badge of honor. You fail several times before you're going to succeed. And it was this mindset that gave rise to the venture capital industry, mm -hmm. which was absolutely essential to mm -hmm. the rise of Silicon Valley. And that's what Silicon Valley had. That's what the San Francisco Bay Area had that Boston didn't. You didn't have that venture capital industry mm. where people were willing to make 10 bets knowing that nine of them were going to fail. Yeah. Yeah. Last question I want to ask you. I know you, you've, you've written many, many books on many different topics. And, and this one um, is about the, the different subjects that we've, we've been speaking about. Is this your last 
book or your last interest in the West? Or is, is there still more to be explored based upon all the work you've done so far? So I've written three books that really focus on Western history. Mm. And two of them are episodic. One is called Lone Star Nation. It's the history of the Texas Revolution. The other mm. one is The Age of Gold about the California Gold Rush. Now, this third one, uh, it's a history of the whole American West. So I'm not going to do another history of the whole American West, yeah. but I quite possibly, maybe even likely, will do something more episodic or something more pointed. So maybe there's another part of the West. Maybe the copper industry in Montana or something like that. They're, the West is full of great stories. Mm. And one of the things that drew me to the story is I've written about lots of different parts of American history. And the book that I wrote before I wrote the book on the history of the West was a book about political history. It was about three great senators of the early 19th century, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, and John Calhoun. And they were interesting and important. But what they did was to speak and to write. And so the action in my story, for the most part, is one of them standing up and giving a speech or writing a letter. And I say, I, it's important, and they were eloquent in all of this, but there's something about real action that takes place outdoors. So I didn't exactly write it as a screenplay, but as I was writing the book, I imagined what this looked like as a movie mm. because stuff was happening and people were going places and they were getting killed or killing and there were thunderstorms on the Great Plains and John Wesley Powell was dashing down the rapids of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. So it was a much more sort of cinematic story. Mm. So it has that appeal. Uh, thank you so much for the time. This was terrific and fascinating, and I, I really appreciate it. And uh, it, was, it was great meeting you and great talking to you. My pleasure.